it's it's so hard, you know, because I, I, I think failure is, is the best thing that can happen to a human. And I think fear is the best thing, as, as long as you're not putting yourself in danger, is the best. It's the, yeah, right, you know, don't don't go run and jump off a, a cliff. But in my, in my life, when it comes especially to career or should I pursue this or that, if it makes me a little scared and nervous, I, I tell myself now, yes, this is worth going after. If I feel comfortable about it, then, then I know it's a waste of time and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be bored and burned out with it. And I, I think that's what athletes have to also understand is, is fear is good. Go after it. And if it makes you nervous, if it's in your recovery, it makes you nervous. If you get back on the field, it makes you nervous. Or if you're making a change, just follow that fear. Hey, this is Johnny Owens. I'm a physical therapist with Owens Recovery Science, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm excited to bring you Johnny Owens, who's a physical therapist who currently serves as the Director of Education at Owens Recovery Science. Previously, Johnny was the Chief of Human Performance and Optimization at the Center for the Intrepid. He did that for 10 years where he treated service members who suffered severe, oh, severe musculoskeletal trauma. I heard Johnny speak at the AMSSM conference last month in San Diego, and I was amazed by the incredible knowledge bombs that he was dropping uh, on blood flow restriction and the implications that it has for athletes recovering from injury. Johnny's work has been published extensively uh, for his work with blood flow restriction therapy in the peer review literature, and he's also been featured in 60 Minutes, Time Magazine, NPR, Discovery Channel, and ESPN. And I have no doubt that many of the athletes listening today might be able to add blood flow restriction to their rehab protocol or their training regimen. So, Johnny, really excited to have you on the podcast today, and thanks for taking the time out of your day to you know, share your, your knowledge in, in the field and your own stories of perseverance. Uh, so can you kind of start off just by talking about you know, what blood flow restriction is? Yeah, sure, Kevin, and, and thanks for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to talk with you. And so blood flow restriction, um, in, kind of in a nutshell, it's, it's using a tourniquet system. Um, that you put on the arm or the leg and in the upper portion of the arm or the upper portion in the leg and, and you inflate it to a, to a set pressure based on each individual um, to, to reduce blood flow into, into the extremity, usually while they're doing some sort of exercise. And, and, and so the reason um, we, we apply it is we're seeing more and more that if you're able to exercise at a low blood flow state in the limb, you can use lower weights to, to get pretty similar results that you would see with lifting heavy weights. And specifically, like when you're lifting heavy weights, like what's the percentage of your maximal weight that you're lifting usually stimulates that kind of like hypertrophy and uh, growth hormone stimulation? Yeah, so it's, you know, people can kind of debate the exact numbers back and forth, but if you look at the ACSM guidelines, I mean, we can basically say, 65% would, would be close to the minimum amount of, a, of what we call a one repetition max um, on up to, you know, the higher levels, 80, 90, 100%. Um, and so it's a, it's a moderate heavy to heavy load is, is typically what we need to engage in to, to make adaptive changes happen to muscle. Okay. And do you know like where this idea came from? Like who decided that let's start exercising with tourniquets on? 
Yeah, it's so it sounds a little crazy when you when you first hear it, and definitely had a lot of raised eyebrows um, in the early days when when we were discussing um, this in the in the DoD. But um, we we found um, we did a pretty exhaustive lit review um, early on to just see if this was even physiologically sound, and and then more importantly, was it safe? And I mean, we found early physiology studies um, decades ago where some labs would be using tourniquets. To, to look at things, um, comparing anaerobic versus aerobic metabolism and muscle. But, but if you were to say who really initially championed it, it would be the Japanese and um, a gentleman named Sato, um, who kind of serendipitously um, found when he was occluding some blood flow from the position he was in that he felt like there was a bigger pump effect happening in a muscle. And so um, he, he, he really ran with this in Japan and, and applied it. You know, primarily you would see it uh, in more of the the healthy population as a as a fitness um, sort of tool. So those were the early days of it. Okay, so it's almost like one of those things that happened by mistake, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, like all great things in life, I think. Yeah, you know? um, you're going down one road, and Mother Nature takes you down another, and so um, that that is really where it is, and that's kind of where it took off. Okay, so who would you say blood flow restrictions for? Like the, what population? Yeah, so if we're speaking from a clinical standpoint, um, it's it's beautiful and, and it seems perfectly tailored to uh, to a person recovering from an injury because uh, most injuries, just because of the injury itself, you're not going to be able to handle those loads to make adaptive changes. Um, and then if you tie in something like a surgery or pain or anything like that, um, you're really limited in the loads that you can engage in. And so that's where we saw um, the real writing on the wall that this might have a great play is in the clinical population. So I, I would put that as you know, high at the top. Um, and and that, I think that's why we've just really seen this thing take off and, and had such great success. Um, the other group that I think it's fantastic for is, is our geriatric population. We're seeing more and more evidence that this is a very safe modality um, if done right and especially in in a geriatric population who you know after you get into that fifth decade of life and on up you, you get what's called sarcopenia and that's typically the um, you know the, the decreased inability to metabolize protein enough to make adaptive muscle changes and that's why you know grandpa smith goes to the gym he can lift all these weights all he wants and three months later he still looks like grandpa smith and and, and the muscle just seems to not respond as well to load and to muscle protein synthesis as we get older. Um, and, and a big problem too is as you get older, typically a, a heavier load just, just isn't as tolerable. And so a lot of the BFR research now is, is certainly looking at the sarcopenic population, which with the baby boomers, that's going to be a huge healthcare crisis. All these older folks starting to lose muscle, um, which, which starts to cause all these other uh, medical issues. Um, so I would say those two groups are, are the biggest groups that, that I, I think right off the bat, that, that's who we really need to look at. And then on down the line, I mean, we can start looking at, you know, if you're talking about training and an athlete, you know, this is something that maybe you're in a period where you don't want to lift as heavy loads, you're in season or something like that, or you're more of a seasoned athlete and, and loads just aren't as tolerable anymore for you. I, I think those are great populations. Yeah, I remember seeing like an outside the lines video on your website. Who was the the basketball player that was in the video? I forget off the top of my it's, head. Uh, is Dwight Howard? Yeah, Dwight Howard, and he was saying that how he uses it so he doesn't like put that much pressure on his joints and stuff. Um, yeah, and I, I I use. Have you ever heard something called voodoo floss? I'm sure you have. 
It's like Kelly Starrett's stuff. Yeah, I don't know a lot about it, but I've heard of it for sure. So I started doing that with my knee rehab. I had an OS procedure done probably a year and a half ago or so, maybe Uh more than that. And the the procedure itself helped and like it was a non weight bearing it was a it was a weight bearing service on my femur and that part like feels better but now I have all these like kneecap issues because I was non weight bearing mm-hmm. for like ten weeks so I had so much atrophy right. in my quad so when you were talking at AMSSM I'm like this is exactly like my issue but right. the voodoo floss when I do that I mean I feel like it's similar to a tourniquet type system because you're just wrapping a really tight elastic band around your leg and doing like exercises so i'm assuming there's some sort of blood flow restriction going on and to be honest that's like one of the only things that makes me pain free like after i do that um, yeah so that's why i'm like super interested in, in this are, idea now are you, are you wrapping that around the joint or is it around the muscle no around the muscle so like i'll do okay. one around my calf i'll do some like ankle pumps and then i'll do uh i'll wrap it around my quad like the kind of like right above my knee and then i'll do like yeah. 30 squats wrap it like midway up my quad another 30 squats and for whatever reason yeah. that's like what makes it go but you're right like you feel the pump and um so i can only imagine that the blood flow restriction actual like tourniquet system uh would be even more beneficial yeah it's way different when we use a tourniquet system it's it, for one it's much much harder um because you're really uh, restricting quite a bit of blood flow. It's very hard to get um, a, a much occlusion stimulus when you're just using a wrap. I mean, you just can't wrap it tight enough. Even with these pump-up devices that the combat medics and stuff use, it just takes a ton of, of pressure um, and millimeters of mercury to get enough occlusion to to get to the vascular system. So you are getting an occlusive effect. It's probably pretty mild. Uh, but we are seeing more and more, it seems like any occlusion um, – can be beneficial. I mean, we've seen low pressures have effects. We've seen higher pressures have effects. More and more papers in the lower extremity have come out and shown us that, you know, at times the, the higher pressures have, have more of an effect, um, which, which we can understand physiologically. Clinically, um, you know, we wouldn't suggest something like that. Or I, I wouldn't just because we don't want people wrapping themselves right. too tight, especially, you know, wrapping around the calf. There's a you know, surgeons know not to wrap things tight around the calf after surgeries because you can, you know, you, the perineal nerve can get taken out and then you got a foot drop. So uh, we have to follow all these kind of safe safety guidelines. But right, I understand. Definitely for yourself, yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of going into my next question was like, why not just use a tourniquet? Like, I'm sure you're seeing all these other blood flow restriction device type, not even devices. They're just like bands that are being sold online, you know, for yeah. – you know, muscle growth and bodybuilding type stuff. So why not yeah. just use that? It's a, yeah, a dumb question, but I, <laughs> no, it's no, it's not. It's, it's a great point. And so, um, it, it, it is funny. You know, I spoke at the NFL combine years ago after we did a ESPN story on veterans day in the DOD when, when we were doing this and, um, you know, I, I showed that on Amazon, someone was selling a, a mattress strap, calling it a BFR band. Um, and they were actually out and it said you might also like, you know, below on the Amazon thing. And it was the actual mattress strap, which was cheaper. So <laughs> if you're going to buy a mattress strap, just buy, buy that. Don't buy that BFR bad one. That's that, so funny. That, that was, that was, yeah, right. That was uh, one. And then, you know, several months ago, I, I was just on Amazon looking at stuff and they were on it. I think there was like 28 different products now. So it definitely has gotten out much more into the media and the, and the popular, um, you know, the popular public. 
And and so it, it's just kind of different things. When when you're doing things to yourself, you can do whatever you want to yourself. And and so, you know, you can wrap a tourniquet around your neck if you want, and and, and that's your choice. And, and and exercise is hard. And if you elect to make exercise hard on yourself, you can. I mean, you can run ultra marathons, you can go to CrossFit, and we see injuries that happen from that. But you elect to do that to yourself. When when you get into the clinical environment, you're electing to apply something to a patient who's trusting you. That you're following all the safety guidelines and and so for for us we have to really draw a line in the sand and say well when we're going to apply this to a patient we have to follow what the fda and what what the safety guidelines would say and, and that's they say a you know full or partial occlusion of blood flow should be a medical device so we you know we made sure that we were going to use a medical device lower pressures are are better if you can get a good occlusive effect so the wider more tapered the device the less pressure you need to, to have a, a good occlusive effect. So we make sure we use wide and taper devices to, to avoid these pressure gradients. Using a Doppler system can really dial in on each person what the exact pressure should be because everyone has different amounts of, of pressure that they use. And, and so clinically, we, we, we have to be as safe as possible because we, we can't just bury our head in the sand and ignore all the safety tourniquet literature that's been out there. And, and it's, it's one of the JAG attorneys at DOD when we are first trying to vet this um, he said, well, if the surgeons are having to follow these guidelines to put a tourniquet on someone in the OR, you guys are going to do the same thing clinically. And, and and I think that makes total sense. Outside of a clinic, you know, it's it's totally up to the individual um, of, of what they want to use. Yeah, so I'm going to put a link to your equipment in the show notes so people can kind of see. But I think you did a really good job of explaining, like, what it looks like for someone who can't see it listening to this. Um oh. So well, who would you say that this is not for? Anyone? Well, there's there's groups that we don't know. And so we do have a contraindication list that, um, you know, this is a medical device and it's listed in the device manual. And, and to come to that list was, you know, kind of an interesting process because there's multiple clinical trials going on. Um, I have a ton that I'm involved in. And so as some of these groups come through and we see that it's safe and that we're seeing a significant benefit, then we would say, okay, this population is good for it. But until all those trials are done, there's, there's groups that we're just not sure yet. And so that, that would be our, our folks, you know, that are cardiovascular compromised. Um, you know, what if someone has cancer? Um, what about the peripheral vascular diseases? Um, so, so we do have a, a kind of lengthy, it's more of a sick person list. Um, I hate to use that term, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, if you're relatively healthy, you should be okay. okay. Um, we, we, we have over a thousand certified providers that, you know, we've trained and use our, our device. And, and part of that is if they have an adverse event, you know, they're supposed to report it to us so we can report it back to the FDA that we had an adverse event. And, and so far, you know, we, you know, knocking on wood here, we really haven't had any adverse events that, that are concerning. Um, we've had a varicose vein rupture, um, you know, we've had a few syncope episodes, but, but I think we can understand maybe why on, on some of these cases. Um, so, so that, those are really the, the folks that we just don't know yet. And, and young pediatrics, we don't know yet. Um, we're trying to get our pediatric studies going to, to get a better understanding. Okay. Um, when you say that you educate, you know, people on the device, you know, what exactly goes into that? Is that like placement of the tourniquet system and making sure that you don't do X, Y, and Z? Like what, what do you teach? Is it mostly like physical therapists that you you're, you're teaching or. Yeah. So 
our our group that um, we work with that, that can legally use this device um, are medical professionals. So you, you would have to have a medical license, PT, OT, MD, um, ATCs. And the problem with the majority of that group group is they're going to use it in rehab and most rehab professionals don't understand tourniquets and, and they're not taught in school how to use tourniquets. So part of the education piece, and this was from the regulatory folks and the device manufacturer was we need to make sure people, if they're applying this, understand how to use a tourniquet. And then there's some bells and whistles, like understand how to use the Doppler system and, and get what we call the limb occlusion pressure personalized to each individual. And then understand what the science is that we understand so far with blood flow restriction and how you would apply it in clinical protocols. And, and for that, we, we use our pilot data, what published literature we have, and then what we have ongoing in our in our larger clinical trials of how would I use this after a knee surgery? How would I use this for a tendinopathy? How would I use this for a bone fracture? Um, and so that's what the education really entails. Okay. Um, while we're on the topic, can you like briefly go into some of the uh, science findings, you know, that is, that's in the literature and kind of proves what's so great about blood flow restriction. Yeah. So there, for one, you, your head will spin when you go query PubMed and, and look for some articles on this. Um, you know, we, we figured we would, we would find a decent amount, but there's hundreds and hundreds of, of published articles on blood flow restriction. And, and it's primarily been from physiology labs around the world who have been looking at this um, mechanistically, trying to understand, you know, what what exactly are the pathways that it's tapping into to see these effects that, that we see. Um, if, if you look at just the meta-analysis and systematic reviews that have kind of taken it as a whole, that have looked at who wins, lifting light or lifting light with a tourniquet, pretty much across the board, the lifting light with a tourniquet wins for increasing strength and hypertrophy. If you're to say, well, then who wins lifting light with a tourniquet or lifting heavier loads? In my opinion, I think lifting heavier loads still wins. And, and I think most of the research is still telling us that. That being said, we're dialing in the way we're applying BFR um, a little bit more standard in, in a standardized way where we're using Dopplers to make sure each individual has, you know, the, the right occlusive or pressure needed to have an effect, trying to make sure the loads are, are dialed in right. And so we're really trying to standardize that so we can get better head-to-head -head comparisons. But if, if you look deeper into the science then, well, tourniquets seem to win for low-level exercise versus low-level exercise alone. Um, what, what kind of effects are we seeing physiologically? Um, well, just like when you lift heavy, you have an increase in lactate. When you use BFR, because you're in this low oxygen state, you have an increase in lactate. Then you kind of see these like downstream effects of that. So the studies show things like growth hormone are significantly elevated when you do the blood flow restriction trainings. Um, you see that what are called the muscle stem cells or modulating stem cells are significantly upregulated when, when we do the blood flow restriction training. We, we see things like new capillary beds. Are, are typically added um, in, in the limbs that are doing the blood flow restriction training. And then, and then we're seeing, you know, this is probably the hottest question out there with the least amount of literature is um, what about proximal to the tourniquet? And, and there are a, a handful of papers that have shown proximal changes in the glutes um, and, and in the uh, upper trunk muscles um, when we do BFR. Just because you know, you have the growth hormone stimulated, like in that one area, it kind of like moves to the other areas of the body. You know, we really don't know. And, and 
and anyone that says they know is, is full of it. Um, okay. <laughs> but there's some, some theories going around. Um, you know, one theory is when, when you do BFR, um, you will notice that the, the muscles below the tourniquet get extremely fatigued and they can get fatigued rather rapidly. And so if you're doing something that involves those muscles downstream and the proximal muscles as well, like say a squat, your quads get so fatigued that all of a sudden your glute has to become a prime mover. And then your glutes really work it a little bit harder. Gotcha. Um, e- even though you might be doing a body weight squat or a low load. And we've seen that same thing in these bench press studies. It's shown changes at the pec, both with EMG activity and with um, size and strength. So something like EMG increasing isn't a systemic response. So that's, that is a downstream fatigue effect. So that's the first theory. The second theory is that systemic response, which gets some people really worked up um, when you talk about it um, in the physiology world, but, but it's that old weightlifters, you know, modem, if, if you want bigger biceps, do heavy squats um, to get this whole anabolic drive. And, and so um, a few papers have shown that when people do this in the lower extremities, and then they do something without in the upper extremities. You can see a change there from from all that anabolic drive. And then the third theory that's just thrown around, no one's been able to, or no one's even looked at it yet, is when you put a tourniquet on and all the all the blood flow gets restricted downstream. Um, it's kind of like putting a kink in the plumbing. The the area right above the kink starts to have less and less flow going into it, so it becomes hypoxic or in a low oxygen state. Okay. And so that's that's what I've. You know, I've been kind of seeing as the main theories. We, we do have some studies going on looking at um, hip exercises to, to see if, if we're really seeing true effects. Right, like the turning is still on the quad or whatever, but you're doing yeah. hip ex- Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, when did you start working with veterans? Um, well, I started working with active duty. Um, that's been my main group oh, okay. that I've worked with. And so – um, I, I was in a military base and, and I started in 2004, kind of right as the wars were really taken off. Okay. Um, like what, what was your experience like in working with these, uh, military, I, I guess, active military member service members, you know, yeah. in, in, I know you did a lot with like limb salvage, uh, yeah. treatments. So can you talk a little bit about that and how maybe blood flow restriction played a role in that or didn't? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it played a big role, and that's really where it came from in, in my world. Um, and, and so just to say what it was like working with them, it was the the best and most honorable experience I've ever done in my life. And um, I'm, I'm just super grateful not only to get to work with these these awesome men and women, but just the effect it, it had on kind of changing my whole course. And, and so I, I have a sports medicine background, and that was my, everything I wanted to do was sports medicine and, and went into – uh, what was called Brook Army Medical Center at the time. Now it's called San Antonio Military Medical Center. Kind of with a, you know, it's going to help get the sports medicine program going. And the wars became a much bigger deal um, than I think any of us ever imagined. Yeah. And quick, quickly I transitioned to taking care of a, a group of patients that, that we just didn't know a lot of how to rehab. And they we didn't think they were getting as fair of a uh, fair of a rehab as, as maybe the amputees were, and that was the limb salvage population. Um, and they're, they're the folks with the mangled limbs that were fighting to keep their limbs. And so um, I, I really learned that we had a, a big problem with not a lot of great solutions. So we, we started looking at everything from regenerative medicine techniques to, you know, is there ways that we could regrow lost tissues 
to exoskeletons that if we could keep their legs on or without amputating, um, they could maybe use this. And, and then realizing that for those two things to work, there had to be a strength and hypertrophy response of the muscle. And that's where we segued into blood flow restriction because most of these folks with very mangled limbs couldn't handle any load at all, if, if, if minimal at that. So that's where scratching our heads, we said, well, let's, let's try this new modality. It looks promising. Okay. Yeah. And you guys were at like the kind of in a unique situation. I remember listening to another podcast that you were interviewed on and you were talking about how this particular war was different from other wars in that a lot of the guys who normally would have like gotten killed from a blast or whatever, you know, quadruple amputees, like they wouldn't have made it, but today they're making it. So now you, you know, you, you guys are in a different situation in terms of the type of patient that you have to get back to, you know, a normal ish life. So yeah. how is, is that kind of where you guys really had to like think outside the box and start using things like blood flow restriction? Yeah, it really was. And, you know, we had the lowest fatalities of any modern day conflict in OEF, OIF, um, which meant, you know, much more people were coming back to us alive, but in prior conflicts, many of those people would have never made it back to us, or if they did make it to us, um, they, they probably wouldn't come back with this limb attached to them. And so then we had these limbs that were just a complete wreck and, and, and people in our limb salvage program for, you know, two to three years, just going through the salvage procedure where they're wearing these frames on their legs and doing everything he can to just hope the bone will heal and the soft tissue envelope will heal and they can keep their limbs. And so then you're looking at these folks and it's like, man, now they're stuck with this, this extremity that's, that's extremely weak extremely painful. Um, and, and they're asking us, why did I keep this? And we're telling them, you know, well, it's good to have a leg, but, but if it's not functional and it hurts and there's no muscle, then maybe it's not. And so that was looking at what we could do. It was, it was basically the ACSM guidelines and, and what we understand from physiology is, is loading is going to make you bigger and stronger over time. And they're saying, I can't load at all. We, we had to look at another option. And, and then we're also learning that, once you're injured, it seems like the body just kind of goes haywire at times. And even even minor injuries compared to the blast trauma, they're not minor to the individual that went through it, but something like an ACL, um, you know, some new great work done by Chris Fry and Brian Noharan, you know, showed us that if you biopsy the quad, the muscle just looks like it's completely kind of changed and gone to hell in a handbasket. And so... Then we're looking at, do we need to, on a molecular level, start understanding what happens with muscle physiology? Because it, it seems like the body does whatever it can to just kind of scar you up and get you moving, um, rather than letting the, a full regeneration and get you back to 100, 110% would be. And it's probably an evolutionary type thing. If you could just quickly stiffen the limb up and get you where you can kind of limp away from a dinosaur the next day, that's great. Right. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that in terms of like the molecules like changing in your muscle because even when I get like grassing done like uh, in the area mm -hmm. around my kneecap, like it's so like crunchy, like it just doesn't f it doesn't feel like the normal muscle on my other leg, like in that same yeah. area. So maybe that yeah. maybe that is what you're talking about. Well, uh, and just look at people after injury, and, and some of these are high end athletes. You know, I work with them all the time, and. It's like, yeah, he had an Achilles repair three years ago, and he's lifting heavy now and doing things you think would change the muscle, and you see the calf is still significantly smaller, or right. they had a knee surgery, and the quad is, 
And so then you know that there's something that's changed completely in that muscle. And that's that whole hoof beats behind you syndrome of why people mentally might not get over injuries as well either, because the body understands that, that there's something different down there. Interesting how it's all kind of connected there. Um, it all is. So I'm, before we get off the limb salvage topic, like what would, I guess like what, what goes into the decision to like keep it? Like where, where's the bar of like, all right, you keep this limb versus you get rid of, you know, you amputate. Yeah. The limb. <laughs> you know, you would think we would have this great protocol that we would say, this is best evidence and this is best science. And, you know, you fall in this category, so we're going to amputate. And, and unfortunately, we really don't because the science and, and the best evidence doesn't really give us a definitive answer. And so years ago, um, the civilian orthopedic surgeons got together and said, we, we want to do a robust study to figure out who just does better. Does someone who keeps a mangled limb do better than someone who elects to amputate it? Because um, they were tired of trying to help make these decisions without knowing which one does better. And so it wasn't a randomized trial because you couldn't randomize, you know, someone comes in the ER and says, we're going to cut your leg off and you're going to keep yours, you know, so it was elective. And so there was much more people that elected to keep their limb. And, and you'll see this when your people are making decisions between limb salvage and amputations. Most people initially will elect to keep their limb. But then when they tracked the two groups out over seven years, there was really no difference at all um, between the groups. They were almost even on every subscale that you would look at. And then by even, we mean evenly crappy. Um, so most of the, most of the things in life weren't doing great. You know, they were right. disabled, they're on disability, they were unhappy with life. They were many addicted to drugs. And so that's what we, all we could say is, you know, unfortunately, young man or young lady, your life is forever going to be different from this. And, and um, we're going to have to work mentally to get you over that hurdle. But this decision really needs to be up to you and, and we can guide you with with some of our expertise and we can bring amputees and limb salvage folks up to talk with you and 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 help you just kind of make that decision and like i said most people were attached to their limb it's a bad kind of saying but then most of them would keep it initially yeah because uh, i talked to ryan miller who was one of your patients and he's yeah. a, our episode number 79 guest yeah. and Ryan's he's a, a he's, guy. yeah he's a limb salvage patient i asked him that question like when did you decide that you like want it was like three years after his injury he decided to amputate his leg and he's like yeah. oh i just realized that all these guys with uh, you know, amputation or they amputate their, their leg or like running circles around me while I'm still struggling with all these like nerve pain stuff. He's like, yep. it was actually a pretty easy decision for me. So, yeah, well, uh, I, and, and, and definitely. And, and I, I do think Ryan struggled with that decision for a while. Um, Cause that, anyone who has to make that decision is hard. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that was, that's one of our major problems too. Um, is trying to make a decision in the here and now right? Um, when you're, when you're young and you're watching all these young amputees running and then, and then you, you know, you got to think about, well, what about when I'm 60, 70? So it's, it's right. just, I, I, I don't envy these guys at all for that terrible it's decision. A tough to decision. Make. Yeah. And I'm yeah. even thinking like when you go to the dentist and stuff, like I grind my teeth and like <laughs> the doctors or the dentist is like, you know, you only have one set of teeth. Like you need to wear a mouth guard. Like I do, but, uh, yeah, it's it kind of goes back to it goes into the limb salvage thing. It's like your best option you think is like what God gave you, you know. So like, yeah, if you get yeah. rid of that and get something external, like it's not always the best option. 
but yeah but it's you know there's fantastic prosthetics now and great surgeons and so um luckily in this day and age when you do go down that route um you, you have a lot of great tools to help you all right uh so you've ha- obviously had a lot of experience working with veterans and athletes who have probably been at pretty low points in their lives so what seems to lead to the best best outcomes for them in terms of like treatment attitude support that they might have so attitude i would put is number one um and then i think anyone that is willing to put in a lot of hard work and and then can mentally you know just go at this with gusto um, is, is always going to be ahead of the game, no matter where you are. And, and I think we see this all the time. So, so I would say that is number one. I, I do think there is a facility effect. And if you're lucky enough to, to get at some facilities that, that have, you know, some fantastic, um, capabilities, um, maybe that's going to put you ahead as well. You know, for instance, our facility, we had this exoskeleton device that no one else had for a while and our limb salvage and we've seen it in some papers now did better because they could get this on and they could go out and run. And, and we were seeing delayed amputations from that. So if you're lucky enough to get it at, at a great place that, that has something that's right for you at that right time, um, then I, then I think it's there too. Um, so I, I think those are two things, but it's hard work and attitude. It, it's all about the individual first and, and then whatever support you can give them as a clinician and facility. Okay. Um, so what did like what advice did you or I guess how do you keep their spirits high like when they get you know down like how do you I guess I'm thinking like goal setting like how do you keep them positive throughout the experience? Yeah, it it it's very hard with service members and athletes because they really define themselves by that by that moniker, you know, I'm I'm an athlete. And this could be a young athlete, and I, I've been through this myself, or a pro athlete, or a service member. And it could be a tier one, you know, SEAL Team Six, or it could be an infantry kid. This is who I am. This is what I do. And and so the first step we have to really do is is try and help them understand that, you know, that's not what defines them. Um, you know, there's there's more to them than that. And, and we struggled. We realized that the psychological piece at the Center for the Intrepid was a very big problem. And so two two things that I really pushed for um, as, as chief of our performance program there were we needed strong psychological counseling and support because they all had that in the hospital, which is across the street. You know, they could go and, and they would get the you know PTSD support, sleep support and all that. But, but we, we brought in a sports psychologist who really tried to shape, you know, who they are as a person, what their goals in life are, um, their family, what is their next step going to be? And, you know, um, how, how can we change who we are? And, and, you know, we see this a lot in the pro and college ranks. They have these type of, of counselings as well. The, the other thing we really pushed for was, was a, a strong nutrition program because we knew that really tied in to what we were trying to do in rehab. So. There were times that they were definitely in in the depths of despair um, and, and much, much more with these blast trauma folks um, who've lost their buddies. They've lost their family at times. You know, their wife didn't sign up for it and left. Um, they've been addicted to drugs. They've gone through withdrawal, had some commit suicide. And so it's, you know, building a culture for that group was the number one thing that really helped. And so we try to make our center very culturally specific to blast trauma service members 
all helping one another. Um, and, and, and it's a very open treatment facility and, and everyone is the new guy would come in and down in the dumps and it wasn't on the clinician because they lots of times they didn't want to hear it from us other than, hey, we're going to help you get through this. It was having this culture and this cohort of peers come over and, and really work with them and help them. Um, and, and I think in the in the sports world, it's the same thing. If, if you have a culture of of peer support and, you, you know, you didn't just blow your knee out and you're this running back and you feel like everything's over, you're going to have to, you know have your your peers around you help lift you up um i think that's what we really saw help the most we we did see a little rebound effect though with once some of our folks left our center and they lost that cultural support um they, they really got down in the dumps for a little bit you know when, once life smacked them in the face um of, of this is the way it's going to be and, and so then we had to you know let them know they were always welcome to come back and, and we were going to try and do what we could to help them so how did that affect you as, as a physical therapist working with these uh, veteran or veterans or active service members, you know, when some of them are committing suicide and, you know, that's kind of like a lot of negativity, a lot surrounding you. So how did that impact, you know, you? Yeah, you know, luckily there was way more positivity than negativity. Okay. And, and this place, you know, where I was, was amazing. And in most of our, or I would say really all of our military treatment facilities, um, you go in and just the, the spirit you feel in there is, is awesome. We, we, we still do this day and we've, we're in our 11th year at the center for the intrepid, um, do two tours a day of, of groups coming through from boy scouts to movie stars and, and congressmen, um, to, to just go through the center and, and, and feel, um, that, that kind of vibe. So, so that was definitely a, a very, a very good thing to have more positive than negative. Okay. Um, the negative though was, was hard because, you know, a sports, you know, an ACL or an ankle injury, whatever, if you're an athlete, it sucks, but you know, it's kind of a lot easier to pull yourself up by your britches and someone who's lost, you know, everything it seems like. And so, um, it, the one thing, it was very hard to ever feel sorry for yourself at this place. And, and one day I was really just, you know, we just call it the poo poo lip. I was, I was, <laughs> pissed off about something it's probably because i had to go through another stupid training or meeting that the government was making me do and uh one of our triple amputees was sitting there and he said what the hell's wrong with you johnny and i said and I was like yeah you know nothing and blah, blah blah and he's like man you know it took me an hour and a half to just get ready and get the bus to come up here today and he's like and you're feeling sorry for yourself with that he's like i don't really have time to deal with you when when i've worked so hard to get up here for this and after i heard that i was like god dang man i need to i need to really have right. a mindset change and, yeah. and go through a change and so um I, I think i always was able to to look at that as a, as a way to stay motivated perspective right yeah <laughs> it is perspective although i think it, i think it would grind i think it did grind on me just the you know, you would see just so many young lives changed. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty stoic guy. And I grew up in West Texas, son of a mechanic. So, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of emotional. That's things. America um, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Uh, but, you know, I, I did have a, psych, a psychologist or psychiatrist that was a patient. And he said, man, I think you should probably go see someone because there's no way you can see this and deal with it every day and not have it affect you. But yeah, but, did no, you? I'm good. No, I did it. No, <laughs> I uh, feel fine. You know, I'm okay. good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so you obviously have a, a sports background too. I know you said that you played high school football in Texas. Speaking about that, you know, American cowboy uh, stereotype. <laughs> so, yeah. what, what was it like playing high school football in in Texas? It's good, but it's competitive as hell, man. And so um, I wasn't that great at football. I was pretty good. I was always a pretty good athlete, but you know, I wasn't 
top tier football, um, but but it's everything. And unfortunately, we were in the same district as Midland Lee and Odessa Permian, the Friday Night Lights. Right. So we'd always get our butts kicked out in Lubbock, Texas by, by those guys. And so, um, but it, but it's amazing thing. I mean, that's all anyone cares about down here is, is, is football. And it's all my dad cared about. Um, and, and I, and I love it too. So, so it was an amazing thing. I just, I just wish I would have been much better to take it to the next level. <laughs> okay. Well, how'd you get into soccer? Well, that was, you know, my dad put me in like every sport there could be, um, growing up. So, well, that you would play in Texas. So that's basically baseball and, and football. And, um, then I, I got on a soccer team when I was young and, and I was just always good at soccer, um, much better at soccer than the other sports. And so I think you just keep gravitating to, um, to what you're good at. And eventually right. I started leaving the other sports and, and kept doing more and more in soccer. I quit football to my dad. So I don't mess my knee up because I was looking to get a soccer scholarship and I thought to play pro and then I blew my knee out playing soccer. <laughs> That's usually how it works. I did similar yeah. things. I was like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna go snowboarding anymore. Ride my dirt bike because I don't I don't want to get hurt for football." And then, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. But so, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the ACL uh, injuries that I had? Yeah, didn't you have multiple, or was yeah. it just one? Yeah, I, I did. Well, I, I had my first one in '89, um, and I was it was in the summer playing soccer and non-contact injury out in a bunch of rain and. And just felt that terrible pop. I still feel it in my head every every time I think about it, um, and blew it out. And so I always tell my patients, if you can avoid having ACL surgery in the eighties, I, I would do that. And so <laughs> back then, back then they, they, it wasn't as good as it is nowadays. You know, and they put me in a cast for eight weeks, um, which is a terrible thing to do after your ACL. And, and so my my leg just basically shriveled up to nothing. Uh, if, if you immobilize the joint like that in the ACL, it's, it's probably not going to be a good graft that takes. And, and so I, I came out and I actually kept on playing. I was playing some college soccer and was able, I was doing pretty good, but I always knew my knee wasn't right. And then I, I retore it again um, and had it repaired and then was doing really good after that one. And then was riding my bike to school one time. I got hit by a car, what? A car and tore it again. Yeah. Yeah. So that was number three. So did you get another surgery after that one? I did, and that's when I hung it up. Uh, <laughs> I just played recreationally after that. Were you wearing a helmet when you got hit by a car? I wasn't, yeah. You weren't? Was, that was early 90s, you know. And not cool to wear helmets was, back then? Not cool to wear a helmet. <laughs> I was at the University of Texas. It was only like a three-block mo- three bike ride to get to campus, and the uh, lady ran a red light. So Classic. Yeah. Um, what was it like going to the University of Texas? I mean, when I was in high school, that was like the Vince Young era when like Texas was everything. I was like a huge Texas fan because I was a big baseball guy growing up. So it must have been a cool school to go to. It's the best school to go to, man. Hook them horns. Yeah. The Harvard, Harvard of the South. So, um, <laughs> no, I love it. It's because it's a humongous school in a small city, so it's a true college town, and, and you just really feel like you're sucked into a, a huge college environment. Unfortunately, I was there pre <laughs> – pre Vince Young years, you know, we were happy to go to the, to the Sun Bowl out in El Paso. Um, and so right after I graduated, um, was Ricky Williams last year, um, or maybe two years before that. And so then we started getting good, of course, after I get out. The Heisman Trophy winner. Yep. Um, so back to the ACL injuries, how did those affect you like mentally and emotionally as an athlete? Yeah. So mentally, definitely. I, I think, 
just because I had gone through several of them and I knew my, my leg was just not quite right. Um, I, I don't think I was ever back to the game that I, that I was, I, or I know I wasn't before and, and I didn't get good rehab, you know? And, and so it's kind of funny when I was applying to physical therapy school and I had a counselor at the university of Texas who was kind of helping coach us who were in this kind of pre-med pre-PT program. And he said, you know, you don't want to use this story that you got hurt and you went and did PT. And now that's why you want to be a physical therapist. And he's like, everyone does that in their interview. And I would come up with a different story. And I said, well, my story is really, I got hurt and I went and did rehab and my therapist sucked and I hated every minute of it. But I figured if this guy can do it and make a decent living, I could do it because <laughs> I wasn't really big into grades. Um, and, and so I, I never really went through good rehab um, and, and I didn't get my leg back to where it should be. And so it, it, I still have pain in my knee. Um, I've, I've got a pretty arthritic knee now, as, as you should after that many injuries and surgeries. And so mentally and physically, um, it definitely shut me down. The third injury, though, was the best injury of my life because it made me decide I need to do more in life than think I'm going to be a pro soccer player. Okay, so it was almost like a an eye-opener for you. It was, yeah. All right, so what was that transition to life after sports like? When you Did, did you kind of – turn that into becoming a PT, like in kind of finding a new identity in that world? Yeah, it was. Um, it was basically realizing that if if I really want to do this, and the more I started volunteering at good places and seeing I wanted to do it, I realized it's pretty competitive and I have to have some decent grades to get in. So so then I I, I got focused. And I, and I think once you kind of get in focus and you get that flow of going after something that, that makes you excited, then, then you can really put a a lot of good effort and human spirit into it. And so, so that's what it did. And that became all I wanted to do. And, and then I, once I decide I'm going to do something, I, I really try and make sure I, I try and be the best I can be at it. And so ever since I've gone to PT school and been out of PT school, I've, I've tried to push myself to, to be as good as I can be. Well, yeah, not to be a brown noser, but at AMSSM, your, your, your talk by far stood out more than any other one in my mind. So you're, oh, you're, wow. you're, you're definitely at, at the top in my book. So, <laughs> well, that's a great compliment. There was a lot of good speakers, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, just a few more questions before we wrap it up. Uh, what, what's your advice to athletes going through that transition? Since you seem to make a pretty successful transition in life after sports, what's your your advice to to those athletes? Yeah. So, I, w- I would always say that what you do does not define who you are, and every everything that happens to you good or bad is an opportunity to, to go after something new. We have, we have a saying at the Center for the Intrepid, we always say is fail better. And so if, if you do hit failure, um, go at it. And that way, if it happens next time, you'll, you'll even do better at it. So I, I think that that is it is there's just so much more out there that's opportunity. And I don't think anything that happens to a person usually in life that's traumatic if they go at it the right way, they don't look back at it and say, man, that was the best thing that happened to me. And, and it's really changed the way I look at life, the way I care about myself, my family and my friends and, and what this new, you know, what this new thing is in my life. And I've seen it with athletes. I've seen it with some of my severely injured blast trauma folks who are just doing fantastic things like Ryan, you know, went to Harvard and went yep. on and is doing great things now. And I just, I get that so much. And so the human spirit's amazing. Don't, don't let what you do define who you are. Okay. Yeah. I, I love that because especially the, the failure part, because I feel like, especially as athletes, a lot of times we're so afraid to make mistakes. So when we, when we 
are no longer able to play sports, we're afraid to go out there and do other yeah. things because we're afraid that we might fail or not be good at it. Cause the thing that we were good at is no longer something that we can do. So it's, it's so hard, you know, I, I, cause I think failure is, is the best thing that can happen to a human. Yeah. And I think fear is the best thing as, as long as you're not putting yourself in danger. Right. Is like, the best it's the, yeah. Right. You know, don't, don't go run and jump off a, a bridge a or something. But yeah. <laughs> in my, in my life, when it comes especially to career or should I pursue this or that, if it makes me a little scared and nervous, I, I tell myself now, yes, this is worth going after. If I feel comfortable about it, then, then I know it's a waste of time and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be bored and burned out with it. And yeah. I, I think that's what athletes have to also understand is, is fear is good. Go after it. And if it makes you nervous, if it's in your recovery, it makes you nervous. If you get back on the field, it makes you nervous. Or if you're making a change, just follow that fear. Perfect. I like that. Um, all right. Where can people follow your work and, and Owen's recovery? Um, so we have a website. It's owensrecoveryscience.com um, where we have information. We have blogs on there, some of the media you know, pieces and things like that. And, and there's an info link if anyone ever wants to reach out to the site. If they have a question specifically for me, um, it will get to me and, and I answer all of those questions. Um, I, I love talking shop. Um, I'm on social. I don't, I'm not a huge social guy, but it's, um, I think it's Johnny Owens at Johnny Owens CFI is my Twitter. And that's my main kind of social thing. Um, All right. Perfect. Yeah. I'll link all that up in the show notes for everyone. And final question. And I'm excited to hear what your answer is going to be for this one, considering that you're the son of a mechanic from Texas and in that (laughs) world. So what's your definition of toughness? (laughs) Well, yeah. Being a West Texas mechanic is, it's pretty tough. And, it's about and as tough as you get. Why. Yeah. That's why I'm not one, I think. <laughs> I always said I was, I'm, I'm the first one in our family that went to college, so he said I was the wussy college boy. So <laughs> maybe I'm not the best guy for this, but, but toughness. You know, so I, I've been lucky to see toughness in, a, in a, an adult model from, you know, some of these toughest Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 guys who you know are tough to – you know, injured young men who are tough and even working with kids who are hurt and seeing real toughness. And so, um, you know, I, I think toughness is, is both mental and physical. And, and I think it's exposure and, and how you respond to that exposure. And so, you know, I, I've seen an extremely big, tough, strong pro athlete who had his first injury when I went to go see him and work with him. And, and he was just scared to death because he'd never had an injury before. And it was, you know, and, and some of the staff was given a little grief about it, but it was his ex- first exposure. And so he doesn't understand it and his brain is trying to process it. And so toughness is how will that person respond to that exposure? Because that's what's going to make that person tough the next time. And, and I think it starts when you're young is letting our young ones fall off the horse and don't help them up. They can brush off the britches and get back on. Um, in my mind is tough and it's, it's not our, I don't think it's our standard definition of tough. It's, it's across the board. Yeah. Johnny, thank you so much for your time and to share your knowledge on the podcast. And I appreciate your willingness to think outside the box, you know, in a world that sometimes doesn't like that. And also to not be afraid to fail and to tell our listeners that, because I think that's a super important thing for injury recovery or transitioning to a life after sports. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin.